Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Turn, if you would, with us to Luke 13, 31 through 35, as we consider the divine determination of Jesus, the divine determination of of Jesus. <clears throat> Got a question for you. This is going to be a tough one. You ready? What does the fox say? What does the fox say? Anyone remember that silly song? There's no silly song uh, that uh, Lando and I used to love to kind of listen and sing together. And then at the top of our lungs, we would then make the sounds or try to make the different sounds that maybe a fox makes. Again, you know, we know what a horse says. We know what a, what a, what a, what a pig sounds like. But what does a fox sound like? I don't know if I've ever heard. Maybe it's a yip. I'm not sure. But, uh, but it's just kind of a funny little song that we use to do and just sing out loud all the different types of noises that a fox might make. This is the week of the fox, by the way. Some of you might have watched a little bit of the news and saw that there was a little fox running around Capital D.C. this week uh, protecting a little kit. And I didn't know that, that a fox's uh, brood of little, little foxes is called a kit. But I guess in her uh, protecting her little kit, she wound up uh, biting about nine people, including one lawmaker. Unfortunately, they had to put her down to check for rabies. Uh, the fox, not the lawmaker. But, uh, you know, that's one of the things we're saying. Well, today we are going to fo- find out what the fox has to say or what the fox sounds like. Luke continues his narrative of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. As Jesus is teaching his followers about discipleship, what does it mean to truly be, excuse me, a disciple of Christ? And now the next several, excuse me, I've got a frog in my throat this week. The next several, let me just take care of this. You may want to pause this for a second here. And now... It started coming on during the ACC class, and I could tell, but usually it it works its way out before, but apologize for that. But the next several passages that we're going to be looking at are filled with warnings and uh, about the warnings for those who would reject the ministry, the uh, the ministry, the miracles, the message, and the man of Jesus Christ. As he's visiting the various towns and villages, he's giving them warnings of what it means to reject Christ. And we saw last week that only those who strive, who agonize, will enter the kingdom of God. Those who seek after Christ, because he is the only entrance to the kingdom of God, is through the narrow door, which is Jesus And that many we seek, we also found that many will seek only to fail in their attempts to enter into the kingdom of God. So there was a warning. You must strive to enter through Christ and Christ alone. In today's passage, Jesus is warned quickly to move away from the towns and villages that he has been ministering to as he makes his way towards Jerusalem. Jesus' response is going to strike them either as very foolish or brave, however, Jesus was very confident in God's sovereign and providential rule over all of humanity, including earthly kings and rulers. So with that, let's read Luke 13, 31. The first verse is up here. The rest will be according to your Bible. Again, I encourage you to bring a Bible. If you need one, let us know. 
But what we read in Luke 13, 31 is Luke writes at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, speaking of Jesus, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. Father, I pray that you just bless this time. Uh, Sustain my voice through this, please, uh, that we may hear your word. We thank you for uh, preserving of your word to us that we can trust it. Father, that you have ordained that it would be through the preaching of your word, through the hearing of your word, would come saving faith. So if there's any here this morning, Father, that do not know you, that do not have that saving faith, I pray that your spirit will now just usher down, come in, and begin knocking and and, and working on their hearts that they may come to know you by the end of this message. Lord, if there's uh, any here, Lord, that's struggling in their faith, Father, that you would, through the preaching of your word, the means of the preaching of your word, that you would encourage and lift up. That you would challenge us, rebuke us when necessary, correct us, but above all, train us in righteousness. Thank you for your goodness and love. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, as we look at this, these Pharisees saying, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Whether these Pharisees were concerned for Jesus' welfare or not, Luke doesn't state. So what is their motive in doing it? Now, it could have been in the fact that they just wanted Jesus out of their towns and villages. Just get out, and they were saying, go toward Jerusalem. If you're going there, just go now. Or it could have been some who truly had his welfare at stake. We know that there are several Pharisees in Scripture, including Nicodemus and Joseph of Armithia, who were very uh, who were followers of Christ. And so they could have been another group who were saying, yeah, you need to get out of here. You're in the area at this time. Jesus is in the area where Herod rules. And Herod, the fox, what he wants to say is kill Jesus. In any case, they warn him that Herod, who had already married or murdered Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, desired to kill him. So we take a moment, I want to look at who's Herod. There's different couples of color. There's three different Herods in the Bible, as you look at the Gospels and then the letter to Acts. Herod that we're going to look at today was the son of Herod the Great, who ruled during the time of Jesus' birth. And was the one who murdered all the male children two years and younger in order to secure his rule. Remember, it was this Herod the Great that the wise men came to and said, we had seen there's a newborn king. And he says, well, go find him and let me know. According to the Lexham Bible Dictionary, though, Herod, whose name was Antisipus, appears in the New Testament more frequently than all the other members of the Herodian dynasty. His rule coincided with the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus. He's referred to in the gospel as as Antipas, only as Herod. Antipas has adopted that name in 6 AD. He was responsible for the death of John the Baptist, who who he beheaded to appease his niece and his wife. Jesus appeared before him during the proceedings of his betrayal, hoping to see him perform some type of miracle. And you'll see that as you read during the Passion uh, this week, though he declared Jesus innocent, he sent him back to Pilate to be crucified. He reigned for 43 years, and eventually he was exiled to France after his brother accused him of treason. Jesus, in verse 32, once he hears this warning that the fox Herod wants to kill him, he, he begins by declaring his divine design. Now, you know how I like to alliterate. So we've got divine determination. Now we have a divine design in verse 32. And Jesus said to him in verse 32, go and tell that fox. 
Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I finish my course. Now, Jesus calling Herod a fox was not a compliment, but was actually an insult. On the, uh, an insult. It was not on a, a compliment on the intellect or the subtlety of Herod. A fox in today's vernacular can refer to a wicked person who is cunning and treacherous. However, in those days, a fox was considered an animal without dignity or honor. One considered insignificant. In Nehemiah chapter 4, we read of Nehemiah leading the Israelites into rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They had been torn down and destroyed in 586 B.C. And though he had permission and protection from the king of Persia, the enemies of Israel continually tried to thwart and prevent Nehemiah's and Israel's work. Nehemiah records one incident where they were ridiculing the work that was completed. And we see here in Nehemiah 4 that when Sambalat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews and he said in the presence of his brothers and in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish or the burning ones at that as they were taking the old stones and building them up and doing what they can to restore the wall? But in verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on top of it, he will break down their stone wall. What is he saying? The fox, the insignificant animal, as light as he is, if he were to light or jump onto the wall, the wall would just fall down. Essentially, Jesus pronouncing that Herod's design to kill Jesus was insignificant in comparison to God's divine design for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew that the Father's will for him was to continue his ministry until that appointed time of his death. What Herod wanted was meaningless as he has no power to thwart the will and redemption plan of the Father. Jesus is confident that he will finish the work which was begun in Luke chapter 4 to set at liberty the oppressed through the proclamation of the gospel. But now as we continue, we saw the divine design. But as we move to verse 33, we're going to see the divine progress of the redemption plan. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following That repeated phrase, today, tomorrow, and the third day, and then again, today, tomorrow, and the day following, is not necessarily a reference to Christ's resurrection as we think of three days, though Theophilus and the original readers of Luke would have made that connection. It's a Semite uh, idiom, a Hebrew idiom, stating that the time is, though not precise, it is short and close to coming at hand. Jesus declares that I must go on my way, showing his determination is not to be sidetracked in his progress, and that nothing that Herod or anyone else can do can derail or drive it forward or faster or delay his progress in traveling to Jerusalem. He will make it at the appointed time. He's progressing on in his ministry as he's stopping at the various towns and villages, not to delay it, but to continue to proclaim the gospel of, of Christ. Continuing in verse 33, we now see the driving, uh, the, the, the driving destiny, the divine, or, excuse, the, the, the divine destiny 
as he knows that his appointed death is not in Galilee or in Herod's prison. This is the confidence of Christ and in God's plan, the Father's plan. He knows that he will not die in Herod's prison or in Galilee, nor on the countryside by robbers and thieves, but he will die in Jerusalem. For he says, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. The ESV study Bible notes of this phrase, you'll see it here on the monitor, that Jesus did not mean that no prophet had ever died outside of Jerusalem, for some had. Rather, he was employing irony. Jerusalem was the center of Jewish religion and worship and was more dangerous to a true prophet of God than, the pro- than, the, than the th- any threats from Herod in Galilee. From the time of David onward, Jerusalem was chosen by God to be the center of worship for Israel and the center of hope of God or the center of God's unique presence and redeeming uh, work in the world. We saw that in our scripture reading earlier in Psalms 48 is the city of God. It's ramparts. But what we're going to see is we're going to see that eventually God is going to make a declaration against Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is the place where Jesus is going to die. He goes on to lament in verse 34 his divine desire for Israel to repent and to receive him as Messiah when he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often, how often would I gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Something that strikes me as you see a correlation between Herod, he's a fox. But God is like a fa- is God is God the Father is like a hen. Jesus is like a hen. One wants to kill and destroy, another wants to protect. In scripture, a hen is used very often as a metaphor that depicts the father's loving protection over his children. She symbolizes a mother hen who covers her chicks under his wings for comfort, protection, and safety. The Old Testament is full of verses where Yahweh is calling the Hebrew children refrain from the rebellion, to repent of their sin, and to receive him as their God. However, time and time again, and you've seen this as you read the Old Testament, that they would only do so to repeat the cycle of rebellion once again. Oh, how he yearns for them to come to him, but yet they would not. He's lamenting, he's crying this out, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Even though his, he knows that he's going to a death, his pain at this point, his suffering, his desire is for Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem, not his own. In verse 35, we read of his divine destruction or divine destruction along with a promise of divine deliverance. So we see divine destruction along with a promise of divine deliverance in verse 35. Where Jesus behold, speaking of Jerusalem, <clears throat> Your house is forsaken, and I will tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This prediction would not have won Jesus any friends or supporters, as Jerusalem was considered the city of God. In Psalms 48, the psalmist sings of Jerusalem that it is this holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. It's the joy of all the earth. And that within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. As we said before, Jerusalem was the site of the temple. It was the center of worship, the capital of Israel. However, this is not the first time that Jerusalem has been prophesied that it would be destroyed and forsaken by God. In 586 that we mentioned earlier, 
The first temple was destroyed and Israel was dispersed among the nations. You might recall the story of Daniel, of the Daniel and the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel in the book of Daniel. The Bible Discovery website states that in 586, the Babylonian military led by King Nebuchadnezzar succeeded in breaking a two-year-long siege and destroyed much of the city of Jerusalem, her walls, her palace, and most devastatingly, the temple of Solomon, that beautiful temple that was built. We learn from BibleHistory.com that Jesus' prediction here in Luke began actually another 30 years from when Jesus spoke this in 66 AD. Then the Romans, the site states that the Jewish wars began in that year and they were a direct, and they were a direct revolt as there was a direct revolt by the Jews against Rome's authority. Eventually they had raised up enough support and courage to finally attack and rebel against uh, Rome. But Titus with his Roman legions arrived at the outermost northern wall of Jerusalem during the Passover of 70 AD. The Romans built embankments of earthenwork. They placed battering rams and the siege began. The Roman army numbered only 30,000 while the Jewish army numbered 24,000. You would think that's a pretty good uh, 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 ratio there. But according to Tactus, there were 600 visitors crowding the streets of Jerusalem for the Passover in addition to its regular populace. After five months, Rome was finally able to batter down the walls of Jerusalem. The great temple that was built by Herod was burned down and the city was left ruined and desolate except for the three great towers that Herod had built. They served as the memorial strength or massive strength of Jerusalem's fortifications, which he brought to rubble. The legions of Rome brought captives to Caesarea and after over one million Jews were killed in that time. 95,000 captives were taken as prisoners. When Jesus says your city has been forsaken, he's speaking of that 70 AD. But that's not enough because in 135 AD, once again, Jerusalem was completely destroyed and the people dispersed for a third time. The Romans, again, crushed a second Jewish rebellion for independence in a three-year war ending in 135. A second century Roman historian claimed that the Romans killed 580,000 Jews during that war. Listen to this. The Romans completely destroyed Jerusalem at that time, and they relieved to run a plow over all or part of the city. The surviving Jews were expelled and were banned from returning to Jerusalem. It was at that time that we now see the worldwide dispersion of the Jews. And that brings us where we are today. Why are there Russian Jews, Ukrainian Jews, German Jews, Britain Jews? We have Mexican Jews that now live here in us. How did they get there? This is all coming from 135 AD and and the others, in which they are continually dispersed from their land. Even today, we see the results of this rebellion. Even though they have reclaimed part of their land and are recognized as a nation, Israel is still surrounded by enemies who seek to destroy them. Why? Because God desired through his son is to bring them in, but they rejected Christ. As I mentioned, Jesus did not say, does say that there will come a time when Israel be, will be, be rescued. There was a, the prophesied 
a divine destruction, but also promised a divine deliverance. And when they will recognize, or they will recognize Jesus and Messiah and receive them as their king. We saw that there back in 35 where he says, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Apostle Paul writes concerning this future time of blessing in Romans 11. Some must say, well, that was just several days or several months later when, the, when Jerusalem and the triumphal Palm Sunday, that's what usually we think of today is when they recognized Jesus and they said, Hosanna, blessed he come. But those were the followers of Jesus. But Jesus is now talking about Jerusalem, the one who rejected him. In Romans 11, we read the various verses there. He says, I asked and as God rejected his people, Paul asks, by no means, he writes, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And in this, will all, this way all Israel be saved as is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, speaking of today and us as Gentiles. But as regard election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. What you and I need to understand that God is faithful to his promise. In this case, the promise is his plan to redeem his children from their sins and restore them to fellowship, both Jew and Gentile alike. Amen? Nothing can deter Christ then from fulfilling his divine appointment in Jerusalem at the cross of Calvary. He will not be hurried by the Pharisees. He will not allow the rejection of the people to deter him. He will not let the threats of Herod keep him from his divine appointment. Now, through this passage, I want to come as we just did some observation of it. What is it then is this telling us about today? Well, through this passage, we see that Jesus is very confident that he would make his divine appointment in Jerusalem at the exact time that he was to make it. No one can prevent nor thwart the plan of God. Scripture points out that the incarnation of Christ was right on time in Galatians 4 when he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born in the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoptions of sons. So when we think of Christ's incarnation during the Christmas time, that came just at the right time, at the fullness of time. In Ephesians chapter 1, if you want to turn there very quickly, verses 7 through 10, oh, I guess it is here on the monitor, Paul writes of the plan of redemption coming at the right time. When he says, in him, speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us all in wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to write all things in him, things in heaven and earth. Christ knew exactly where he needed to be. He knew exactly where he needed to go. And he knew exactly what that time would be. So once again, we see in scripture displaying the sovereignty and providence of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in action through the confident, courageous determination of Jesus. What would you do 
If someone were to come here and say, listen, there is a bomb threat here. You got five minutes. What would all of us do? Would we stay and finish this portion of scripture? Probably not. We'd probably get our children and, and exit, you know, call the police, the fire, so on and so forth. But to Jesus, he said, no, this is what I need to do. We have spoken before about the sovereignty and providence of God as the creator of all things. And it's important for us to understand that nothing and nobody is free from his loving control. When you and I think of sovereignty and providence, we may not think of, of his loving control. We may think of just control. He's just making us do what we should. He's, he's violating our free will. But what we see in the sovereignty and providence of God is really his loving hand, a, a hen who is gathering us together, the shepherd who is bringing in his flock to protect, to feed, and to guide us. John Piper writes in his book, Providence, you'll see it here on the screen, that God's sovereignty focuses on God's right and power to do all that he wills. And I think it's important. God's sovereignty focuses on God's right and power to do, that he, to do all that he wills, while providence has come to mean the act of purposely providing for or sustaining and governing the world. So it's, it's God saying, this is what will happen, and then God doing all the chess pieces of life to bring that into action. It's like someone like Landon who writes a movie script. It's taking everything and moving everything in such a way to get to the determined end that he has. I would say typically you when you're writing that you have an end in mind, right? Or do you just kind of just let it all flow and you let the characters choose what they want to do? A little bit of both. But typically you know where you want to go. You know what the ending is and you're moving your way through it. Jesus is that great author who is writing our script of life. And in that it is perfect. We're seeing that it's sovereignty and God's providence in making all those things happen. Herod may say one thing, but God is providentially sustaining, governing all the things that is going to happen. So he will give protection to Christ until that time. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Isaiah 46. I think this will help us understand. Now, to help us understand how these work together... Piper has coined a term that you'll see here on the monitor that you may want to write down. I think this is a good way, is how to think of sovereignty and providence. God's sovereignty and God's providence is purposeful sovereignty. That, that's what we're seeing here in God. God is revealing that he has a purposeful sovereignty. Meaning that all that transpires in the world comes from God's hand and that it serves a particular purpose. You're there in Isaiah 48 or 46, I believe. Look at verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God. Now this is Yahweh's declaration. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. If you have your Bible, you may want to underline that and highlight that. Uh, you, you want, you, if you're going to get a tattoo, get that one on there. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it 
to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Here we see the purposeful sovereignty of God in this passage. Christ has a a divine appointment and he has divine determination to make it to where God has called him to be. And it will not deter him from that path. Now compare what we just read about about the, the Father. My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all of my purpose. I have spoken and will bring it to pass. Now compare that with rulers today. Whether it's presidents, premiers, governors, etc., mayors, school board, what doesn't matter? All desire this type of power and rule, do they not? They all believe they know what is best for us to do. Unfortunately, the vast majority of them are moving us quickly towards an all-out wickedness. The days when they pretended to be God-fearing and God-honoring are well behind us as they compete to see who can lead us deeper into depravity. Instead of honoring God, they plot in vain against him and his holy word. They believe, well, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And we're going to accomplish that. We're going to set our rule and we're going to make a utopia in this world. However... The psalmist asks in Psalms chapter 2, looking here in the monitor, why do the heathens rage and why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take cause together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cards from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Herod should have known this passage of scripture, but he was a fool. He was not intellectual. intellectual, He was insignificant. His desires may carry the the weight of a king or a tetrarch or a governor, but really it was just meaningless. As it falls on deaf ears. What you and I learn about the purposeful sovereignty of God, especially in comparison to the rulers of this world, is that we should not fear our political, cultural, and social leaders. We should pray for them as scripture commands us to do. But trusting in the purposeful sovereignty of God calls us to cast away any and all doubt, worry, and anxiety. We should remember the words that Yahweh declares to Israel through the prophet Isaiah. When he says, uh, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Many of you have things in your life that are causing difficulties, trials, suffering, anxiety, worries. And all these things that we think of what the world wants to do, whether it's President Biden or Governor Newsom or maybe our school board or the World Economic Forum. And we're we're all concerned about these things, but we must remember is that God has given us his word. And we know exactly how things turn out. You and I need to trust in the purposeful sovereignty of God. That type of attitude is found with the apostles soon after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. 
Peter and John speaking to the rulers, the elders and scribes in defense of their ministry as they are being brought into prison, that they are being beaten. He delivers this in Acts chapter 4. Is that on the screen? Thank you. I wasn't quite sure. As he writes there, the, Peter says this, the kings of the earth sets themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, speaking of Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod the fox and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do what? Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There is nothing that happens in your life that is not part of the purposeful sovereignty of God. It doesn't matter how serious or inconsequential it is. On our way Friday to, um, uh, to small groups, to our Friday night uh, life groups, we're driving, we're bringing the food, we put it in our back trunk, a little hatchback. On our way, we're driving to the small group, and all of a sudden at a stop sign, nothing's going on. Bam, we get hit from behind. We're all stopped. I'm not sure what's going on. Now, this is the second time I've gotten hit in the last year. I don't know what's going on. Well, it's the purposeful sovereignty of God, but that's the whole point of the story is then we go, we, we get there, everything's okay. It looks like we have a little dead, but then we see that I can't even open it because it crushed in the handle. All our food is in the back and it's like, oh my goodness. And your first thought is, oh, how inconvenient. That was my thought. This is now, this is very, nobody's hurt, but it's very inconvenient. I got to do all this and hopefully the insurance will pay for it to get my car fixed. Now I don't have my trunk. I got stuff in there. Where am I going to put my golf clubs? There are real things happening in my life. It's just the purposeful sovereignty of God. For some reason, his declaration is this gentleman would hit my car. And I'm going to have to suffer through some insignificant, meaningless inconvenience. Prayerfully, that's all it is. But even in the simple things that we must recognize that. But mainly, even when the more difficult things happen. A death in a family. Uh, a tragedy with suffering medically. Or some other type of issue that may come. Economic disasters. War right now. Purposeful sovereignty. And what I'm sharing with you is what we see here is Christ's divine determination to follow God's will despite all of those things. And I think you're getting a hint now is that you and I need to recognize the purposeful sovereignty of all things in our life. Even our own sin and failures. Knowing that it was God's plan fueled Jesus' bold and courageous determination to continue with his ministry despite the threats of Herod. Let me share with you, if you're struggling in your marriage, knowing the purposeful sovereignty of God, that he has called you to love your spouse, to submit to your husband, to live in an understanding way that we need to boldly determine to follow God's law in all those things. doesn't matter what area of your life, if it's in, in your workplace, it may be in a sin that a fight, a battle against sin. Thomas Schreiner writes that Jesus does not fear political authorities because he knows his life is in the hands of God. Let me ask you how aware are you that your every moment, waking and sleeping, is in the hands of God? 
How much does that encourage you, challenge you? How much of that affects the things, the choices, decisions that you make? Kevin DeYoung tweeted this week that God knows what he's doing and he does exactly what he means to do. The, the, or the purposeful sovereignty of God. It should give us confidence. It should give us a courageous determination as we face the trials of life, knowing that everything that we encounter is part of God's sovereign plan for our lives. For those of us that have repented of our sin and turned and trust in the works of Christ, Pastor Milton Vincent in his Gospel Primer, again, you hear me speak of this quite a bit. I love this little book. I was sharing it with someone the other day, and they said, well, are you Milton Vincent? Did you write this book? And I know, oh, I wish, I wish... Do you know him? Well, I know him. Look what he says, summarizing scripture. God always looks upon me and treats me with gracious favor, always working all things together for my ultimate and eternal good. God's grace abounds to me even through trials, and because I am a justified one, he subjugates every trial and does what? forces it to do good unto me. It doesn't matter what Herod wants to do. He is going to do what God wants him to do. No matter what the threats are, God will see us through it. This captures the truth found in Romans chapter 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those who he foreknew, for he foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified, declared righteous. And those who he justified, he also glorified. So if you are a follower of Christ, your goal, no matter what happens in life, is that you will be glorified and with him forever, and he will be your God. Doesn't matter what the fox says. It doesn't matter what accusation Satan throws at you. God is with us. But you say, but what if I sin? You don't understand my battle. Well, let's continue on in the gospel primer. When I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more. Not less, but all the more. As he graciously maintains my justified status. He is purposely, sovereignly, he is maintaining, just as he maintains the, the route of the sun and the gravity of earth. He is maintaining my salvation. When I sin, God feels no wrath in his heart against me. I, this is something I always share. I, this is unbelievable to me. Because uh, in and of myself, I cannot feel this way towards others. Even towards those I love. There's always a mixture of anger in there. His heart is filled with nothing but love for me. He longs for me to repent and confess my sins to him. That's Jesus' lament to Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, that I could gather you like a hen with their wings. So that he might show me the gracious and forgiving love that has been in his heart all along. 
God does not require my confession before he desires to forgive me. Doesn't mean we don't ask for confession or give, ask for forgiveness, but he does desire to forgive me soon. For he goes on to write, in his heart, God has already forgiven me. And when I come to him to confess my sins to him, he runs to me, as it were, the story of the picture of the prodigal father, the son and the, the father, and is repeatedly embracing and kissing me even before I get the words of confession out of my mouth. God does see my sins and he is grieved by my sins. And his grief comes partly from the fact that in my moments I've sinned, I am not receiving the fullness of his love for me. That's kind of like what Steve Lawson spoke about the quality of life. He even sends chastisement in my life, but he does so because he is for me and he loves me and he disciplines me for my ultimate good. God is purposely, sovereignly working all things in our life. This captures the promise in Romans 8.1 that there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. So we must trust him even in our strictest, most fiercest battles. That God is for us. Because of God's purposeful sovereignty, you and I can join the saints before us who have faithfully, confidently, and boldly obeyed God's word in defiance of circumstances and consequences. That's where you and I do. That's what Jesus said. I don't care what that fox has to say. I don't care what Pharisees are listening in and how they're going to use it against me. I don't care if this person rejects me. I am determined to keep the appointment that God has made to redeem my children from their sins. You and I need the same way. Set your mind on things above. Set our affections on things above. To seek the kingdom of God above all things. What is derailing you? from your divine appointment to be here at the services. To, sh- to, to take time in God's word, to sharing the gospel. Do not succumb, if I may in closing, do not succumb to the fear of this world or man. Do not be paralyzed by anxious thoughts or derailed by the schemes of Satan. Let us be determined to serve God's purpose in our generation to his glory and our good. And God's people said, amen. Let me close with Ephesians chapter 1, 11, 12. You may want to find this in scripture. Make sure you uh, underline it, maybe memorize it. Because I believe this is the thing that you and I need to keep in our mind that we may divinely, with courage, just trust in him and continue in our way. When it says in him, speaking of Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his way. And we know that what he has declared will come to be so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. All that God has purposed, God will sovereignly accomplish. Let us walk in that way, with that courage, with that determination. If they had bowed and they had closed, uh, I think Randy, if he'd come up and ready in the worship team. Just want to take a moment to pause and consider, not let this passage go past us so quickly. 
<laughs> God is revealing his purposeful sovereignty in all of our lives. And we need to grab a hold of it. I really feel that this in the church, if we've moved a long way in learning doctrine and learning uh, many of the, the big things of God, but we need to get into the little things here or how the big things matter in the little things of life. I encourage you. Are you living a life that shows that God is both sovereign and providential? That means that we don't throw up our hands, we, we let go of the wheel and tell Jesus to take it. But no, that we know that God has called us to his purpose, to fill his purpose in our generation. Let's do so. Let's take a moment to consider, what is it that you need to do in your life? In what ways are you not trusting? In what ways are you listening to the fox? And then would you pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help you to respond to his calling and his movement in your life. Randy, would you come and share? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.